you imagine if Leanne found a, a note on, on her pillow, uh, opened it, I saw my handwriting, opened it up, excited about what I was going to convey to her, and, and it was official Peter J. Ambler stationery type, type set, and it began, to whom it may concern, I wanted to express my gratitude for. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> sincerely, Peter. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't really seem to convey like affection or closeness appropriate for, for a husband and wife. Maybe, maybe that's how you would send a uh, love note to, to your spouse. Uh, it's not exactly the tact that I would, I would take. Uh, of course, most of our messages would just be odd texts to each other, so maybe that doesn't work, but uh, it's good to have a personal introduction to a letter, and that's what Paul does as he begins this letter to the Colossians. Uh, he doesn't begin coldly. He, he follows a, a method that was common in first century letters, but uh, he has his own, um, his own take on it, as it were. And so we're going to start off our journey through the letter to the Colossians this morning. I'll read the first two verses, actually, to, to make the point. This is, a, this, is a, this is all that you're going to look at. I want to make sure you understand what's going on here. Obviously, letter to the Colossians, showing that Christ is king over all things. and everything, he, Christ, might be preeminence from chapter, chapter uh, 2, the center of that. Look forward to preaching that. Uh, heaven and earth are represented because Christ created all things in heaven and on earth. And then you have an individual that would be representative of you and me uh, setting his mind on things above. I was really excited when I saw that picture. So since you don't get to look at anything else today, I want you to at least know what that is. But don't look at the picture. Just pay attention to the word. Let's read that, and we'll go through. Colossians 1, 1 and 2 is our text this morning, that Christ has made us saints and siblings. Christ has made us saints and siblings. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. As uh, Paul introduces himself at the beginning of the letter, and uh, as is familiar, I talked about at the beginning of 1 Timothy, probably would talk about at the beginning of any epistle that we would go through, uh, Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's a title with which he introduces himself. He frequently includes this title in the introductions of his letters, so it was obviously important to him and to the churches and Christians that he wrote to. I've spent a little bit of time thinking about this. What does it mean that Paul was an apostle? Why is this something that he would include in all of the letters that he would write to churches and to individuals? Well, an apostle, uh, what was an apostle? An apostle was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Not just somebody who knew that Jesus had rose from the dead, but somebody who had, uh, who had seen Jesus after his resurrection from the dead. We don't have any record of Paul actually knowing Jesus personally prior to his death and resurrection, but we do have record of Paul um, meeting with Christ, appearing to Paul, so that it wouldn't just be uh, something that he had heard and then becoming a secondhand witness. Uh, he was a firsthand, of, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And, and Acts and 1 Corinthians talk about these things. Another thing about apostles that we see in the New Testament that's true of Paul was that Paul's proclamation of the gospel was accompanied by what he called the signs, uh, the signs of a true apostle. 
which means that there were signs and wonders and mighty works that accompanied his preaching in different cities. These weren't parlor tricks or questionable, debatable acts. He didn't heal people from arthritis. Uh, he raised a man from the dead, right? Categorically different. Uh, like Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Jesus himself, God worked through the apostles in undeniably miraculous ways in order to authenticate their message. There's the Holy Spirit's stamp of authenticity on the preaching of the apostles to accompany their preaching with these signs and wonders. And Paul, as an apostle and the other apostles as well, had a foundational church starting ministry. Okay? Not just planting small seed churches. Okay? When I say that, uh, it was a big seed church. He had a church the church starting ministry. And that was seen in local churches, but his ministry was significant. He was involved, Peter, John, others, the apostles, they were involved in building the church and served uh, secondary to Christ, but served as foundation stones to this building that God was building up. Jesus is the cornerstone. And then the other foundation stones are the apostles and their ministries and their writing. The apostles were more than just pastors or missionaries. Others served in those roles, and some of those were actually called kind of small a apostles because it just means one who is sent. Uh, but when we think of Paul or Peter or John or Matthew, right, we should think capital A, apostle. Um, not an ordinary term, but a significant term. They were a primary means of God's revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A primary means of God's revelation of himself and of Christ to uh, the world, to the church. Why, why was Paul an apostle? Where, where did he submit his resume and um, what was the interview process? Uh, it didn't really work that way. And he, does, he says it doesn't work that way. Uh, here and in other places, he was an apostle of Christ Jesus, was the text say, by the will of God. Now God has ordained, planned uh, decreed all things that have ever and will ever take place. Uh, we speak about this as his complete and total sovereignty. Uh, nothing happens except through him and by his will, his will of decree, right? Before all things wrote the whole story as it were, and now everything happens that he has decreed will take place. We can call that plan God's will, that which certainly will take place. But there's another sense that the Bible speaks of God's will. And this sense is, is the will of that which aligns with God's character. Or, and so therefore it's that which ought to take place. Okay, so the first was that which will take place. This is what ought to take place. Uh, the will of his commands revealed in his word. Uh, stealing and murder are never the will of God in that he forbids them. Specifically, you shall not murder. You shall not steal, right? That's the will of his command. It, it ought never to take place. However, as we read in God's word, uh, we see in the world around us, those things are part of his will or his plan for human history because nothing happens outside of his 
will. We'll spend some more time talking about this, Lord willing, in a later passage, uh, but I did want to kind of introduce that a little bit because Paul's apostolic ministry was certainly part of the eternal, ordained, sovereign plan of God. Everything small and large is, right? You know, uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the fact that I had eggs for breakfast this morning all fall into that which God has decreed on a, on a micro and a macro level. Uh, but God didn't decree in his word that Jefferson, Hamilton should sign those things. Uh, not Hamilton. Hancock. I knew that was wrong. Hancock. Uh, that Hancock or Jefferson should sign their names to that or that I should have those eggs this morning. Didn't like open God's word. It's like thou shalt have eggs and English muffins this morning and it'll be delicious. Uh, it was ordained because it happened, but it wasn't commanded. Okay. So which is this in relationship to Paul. Well, uh, certainly part of the plan because it happened. But that's not what he means here. Paul's ministry as an apostle, not just planned by God, but also revealed by God. Also commanded by God. Paul was called to this ministry specifically and supernaturally by Christ, even at his conversion. We read about that in Acts 9. He talks about it again in Acts 22, I believe it is, and again in Acts 26, just in case you missed what Paul's testimony was. Uh, this was extraordinary. You know that word, right? Extraordinary, as in not ordinary, not how God normally works in his people's lives. In other words, not what you should expect for your life, for you to have your own uh, supernatural Damascus Road experience where Jesus appears in the sky and tells you what your life story is going to be. You should not expect that. That is not how we determine God's will for our lives. It's really, it's actually not how Paul determined God's will for every part of his life either because every detail of Paul's life was not revealed to him. Uh, the big arc of it was, this is what's going to happen and you're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel that you will be proclaiming to the Gentiles and to kings. Uh, but not every little thing that would happen, he didn't get a book that he could read in advance, like his biography written ahead of time. It was written, but it was in the eternal plan of God, not before Paul. And the details of your life and my life have likewise not been revealed to us. We shouldn't expect them to be revealed to us. It does not put us at a disadvantage. And we'll talk about that when we talk about knowing God's will for our lives at a later passage. But as we think about Paul, we think about his apostolic ministry revealed to him by the command of God. We see it in his word. We've come to this conclusion. You know, Paul was an apostle by the revealed will of God, and you are not. <laughs> You're not an apostle. Um, neither am I. And uh, neither is anyone else. And neither has anyone else been since the apostle John died almost 2,000 years ago. 12 men, 13, depending on how you look at the numbers on those things, called to be apostles. 12 out of, what, what millions? But we don't know the number uh, as countless as sand on the seashore. I mean, billions of followers of Christ across the ages. 12 out of all of that called to be apostles. Even the reformers were not apostles. Turn the world upside down as pastors as Christians, not as apostles. They did not see themselves in those terms, and they weren't. They didn't occupy that office. And maybe that seems a bit disappointing, right? Especially as Americans, we want to know that we can all be everything all the time. Like, you can be an astronaut, and you can be a professional basketball player, and 
and you find out, no, I can't even make the junior high squad. I'm not going to be pro. So maybe it seems a bit disappointing that somebody else can be something or was something that you can't. Paul was called to something greater than we are. It's just, it's the fact. In Paul's ministry role, his calling may be greater than our role or calling, but his spiritual identity was not greater than ours. And that's what I want to hone in on today. Your spiritual identity, and we'll see that's as a saint and as a sibling, those things, true of Paul, true of the reformers, true of us, is equal for all believers. Identity. Imagine, close your eyes for a second, the screen's black, and the only word on it is identity, because that's what it would have looked like. We've been hearing a lot about identity in recent years. My identity, what does that mean? Well, my identity is who or what I think I am uh, psychologically or in my mind. That's my identity. We express our identity in very simple statements. I am a, so me, I am a human. Hopefully none of these things are like a surprise. Uh, I am a man, (laughs) I am a husband, I am a father, I am a son, I am a pastor, etc. In our day, uh, we are being told, forced, threatened, that we must agree with and celebrate every possible variation of identity, and specifically it comes down to sexual identity, that someone holds to at any given time. We cannot make assumptions of their identity based on appearance or biology or history or interests. A person's truest self exists in their mind or in their psyche. Uh, And that is their real identity. And there's really no way you could know except, I guess, asking all the time, unless we introduce every conversation with every statement of identity, which some people have done to try to toe the line. And while we should, I would say, I think, I trust we would agree. While we should compassionately but unwaveringly reject that, uh, that isn't the point of the sermon. Uh, For our purposes here today, with that kind of in the back of our mind that this is a big topic, there's one thing I think that our culture's current identity craze gets correct and one thing that it completely misses. The identity craze, right? I am who I think I am. One thing it gets right, one thing it completely misses. I want to walk through that with you right now. What this thinking gets correct is this. You will choose to act or to behave according to your identity. Your your identity does influence your choices. Choices influence actions. That is true. How you view yourself determines, in a sense, how you act. So your identity, who or what you think you are, that is incredibly important. It informs your choices and actions. It impacts your whole life and the lives of those around you. An example, I am, as I said, I am a husband. 
I remember seeing a movie where a married man slipped off his wedding ring when a woman he found attractive sat down next to him. Uh, He wanted at that moment an identity of, I am not a husband, so he could make a pass at her and was grace. She shot him down because she was married. So one cold winter night, I I was working at Starbucks a few years ago. I was throwing trash bags into a big dumpster at the town center mall, taking trash, throwing it off. You get cold, your fingers get cold, your fingers constrict, right? We've all experienced this. So I'm taking dump bags, chucking them into the dumpster. In a second or third bag, my wedding band flies off my finger and into the dumpster. I was leaving for like a work trip the next day or so. I wanted to have that symbol on my hand of my identity as, as a husband, not because I thought every woman in the airplane and everything else was going to flock to me. <laughs> not, not that delusional. Uh, but I wanted to have that symbol on my hand of identity as a husband. So I jumped into the dumpster and I found my ring. And that was a really great story until about two weeks ago when my ring slipped off my finger in the pond at Valley Park while I was wading through cold water looking for disc golf discs. Uh, so I could not find it at that point, at least not yet. I continue to look. So you know, preachers aren't supposed to make themselves heroes of every story. So I have a different one on now. Feel free to look for it. I can show you approximately where it is. A little bit, a little bit of humiliation in that one. I had to explain that to Leanne. <laughs> uh, the point is that as I daily remember my identity that I am, I am a husband to Leanne, I choose to act as a husband to Leanne. That means that I do pursue a committed, close, intimate relationship uh, with her, and I do not pursue that kind of committed, close, intimate relationship with anyone else, woman or man, right? I am a husband to her not to anybody else. So there's a difference. And so as I recognize, as I embrace that is my identity, and as I have a symbol of the reminder of my identity, I choose to act based off of my identity. I am her husband, okay? That's what today's identity gets correct. Your identity influences your choices. But what this thinking completely misses is that your identity should be rooted in truth. It should be rooted, built off of, flowing out from objective reality that exists outside of your thinking and your imagination. Your identity, who you are, needs to be based on truth that doesn't change. Really like playing disc golf, but I am a professional disc golfer only in my dreams. That's a whole other category of playing isn't true of me and never will be. All my fellow disciples said amen to that. You know, I saw a video the other day of a scientist who spent a week in the Alps pretending to be a goat. And he went all, all in had like prosthetic goat arms, installed helmet to butt heads with them, walked around on his hands, these prosthetic hands and and feet. He tried to act like a goat. He he tried to eat like a goat, chewing grass with his mouth, spitting it into a bag with enzymes and sucking it up through a straw, try to mimic cud and regurgitation. I could not subsist on that oddly enough for the course of that week. Why? Because the man wasn't a goat. He slept with goats. You sleep with goats if you want. 
You know, I like getting a good nap in on the couch with Pepper, our dog. Doesn't make me a dog. This man was never a goat. At no point was he actually a goat. The identity of goatness is more than just behavior. It must be rooted in objective reality. I don't think he like delusionally thought he was a goat. It was this experiment. Uh, he got an IG Nobel Prize, which I thought was like a legitimate thing, but it's a sarcastic Nobel Prize, ignoble, as in like, yeah, you did this, but it's really insignificant. Oh, that's a rabbit trail you go down. Uh, apparently, beards uh, um, reduce your likelihood of, or the impact of getting punched in the face. That was another ignoble, ignoble uh, prize this year. So, job, brother. Goats, disc golfers, what's the big deal? It becomes significant for us when we realize that I am a Christian is and should be a primary identity statement for us as believers in Christ. And the objective, unchanging reality, the truth outside of my thinking and outside of my imagination uh, that should be the root of my identity found in God's word has to do with that. So, um, I'm a believer in Christ. What does that mean according to the word for my identity and then for the behavior that flows out of my identity? Who you think you are must line up with who God says you are in his word. You see that? Not just what you think a Christian's like. What does God say a Christian is and does? Live that identity out. So, I don't see any wisdom, I don't see any spiritual good in a believer identifying himself in terms of a specific sin. And here's what I mean. Can you say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm a bank robber. I'm a, I'm a Christian and a murderer. I am a Christian, I am a murderer. I'm not, that hypothetical. I'm a Christian and I'm an idol worshiper. I'm a Christian and I'm an adulterer. I'm a Christian and a homosexual. I'm a Christian and a pornography consumer. These statements are as contradictory as saying I'm a Christian, I'm a human, excuse me, I'm a human and I'm a goat. Or I'm a human and I'm a rhododendron. You can't be both. They're contradictory identity statements according to the truth, the truth, not what I think, not what I feel, but what God says. So hear me clearly. If you've already stopped listening, stop, stop listening or start listening again. I am saying that there is a difference between I am a Christian and a thief and I am a Christian who struggles with the sin of stealing. One's admitting a, a contradiction of action with identity. That happens too. The first one is, is making contradictory identity statements. The second is, is an admission of something also true of us, of one who is being sanctified. So do you see the difference between I'm a Christian and I'm a thief, and I'm a Christian who struggles with the sin of stealing? The first is a contradiction. The second is an unavoidable reality with some sin or other. And some may look at this differently, say that it's important to admit the reality of our ongoing battle against indwelling sin in those terms. I am a thief. I am a liar. I am an idolater. I am an unfaithful husband. But I would say that should only be done in terms of repentance. 
right? God, be merciful to me, a thief, a liar, an idol worshiper, an unfaithful husband. God, be merciful to me. I'm doing these things from which I must repent. There's a difference between that statement and a statement of resignation, right? Repentance versus resignation. Like the first, the repentance is saying, it's like, this wasn't just an accident. I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm owning my sin. If that's what you mean by, I'm a Christian, I'm a thief. God, deliver me from this, right? That's repentance. That's good. But it's just like, well, I'm a thief. Christian, a thief, idol worshiper. That's a, that's a, that's inc- like, that's resignation. That's a, that's an identity claim. This is who I am, and this sin defines who I am. Hear me. No, it doesn't. Sin does not define Christians. The Bible says a Christian is no longer enslaved by sin no longer defined by sin, no longer characterized according to sin. And so to comfortably live in that contradiction is to be double-minded, trying to go in two directions at the same time, Christian and thief. Those are opposite directions. You can't do that. It won't work. One will win. And unless you repent of the sin, the one that will dominate is the sinful identity. Your identity influences your choices. I wish this was a unique story, but it's not. I know of a woman who identified, I am a Christian, and also came to identify herself as as bisexual. I am attracted to both men and women, and using statements to say that. That is what I am. I am a Christian, and I am this. But not to worry, because she wasn't acting out any of those desires. So this is what I am, this is who I am, but I'm not doing anything about it. So it's okay. I'm gonna fast forward a few years and a lot of blanks in this story. She and her husband are divorced and now she's posting pictures of herself kissing her girlfriend. Because when you're heading in two directions with contrary identity statements, one will win and it's the sin that wins. So many, right? And so the one that, want to lean on more, but I was uh, encouraged relationship to appropriateness, right? Uh, I am a Christian, and I also regularly look at these type of things in these type of places. Is that vague enough? You all know what I'm talking about, right? And I just live in this contradiction. This is no big deal. I can do both. No, you can't. And I can give you an example of how this leads to greater and greater spiraled down examples of depravity that then it's not enough to look at or think about, but then you act it out. Then you act it out to an abuse of those that you love and you end up in prison. That's not a vague story. Like, oh, slippery slope fallacy. Well, the tricky thing about slippery slopes is that it often works. You mess with sin, you lose. And a Christian is not to be defined by that. The world offers us excuses. I can't help but steal. Uh, I was born this way. It's natural to look at those type of things. It's just a part of development. The Bible says no. The Bible says such were some of you. 
Yeah, you used to have those identity statements, but now you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified. You have a new identity. Your identity influences your choices, yes. So you must see yourself and your identity as God sees you according to his word. You believe that that's like all basically introduction? So what is your identity? Who do you think you are? That can be like accusatory, right? Who do you think you are? Listen to a podcast of somebody screaming that sad. This is more, so who do you think you are? This is inquisitory, not accusatory. Uh, but who do you think you are is, is not really sufficient, right? It should be, who does God say you are? That's what we want to know. want to base it, our identity, off the truth of God's word. Who does God say you are? And according to the Bible, like the Christians in Colossae, we are, first of all, saints. Paul, to the saints. What is a saint? You know, we are saints not by a, a popular opinion of church leaders. We're not saints according to our godly reputation or miracles performed in our names or martyrdom, as is the case in the Roman Catholic Church. A saint does not mean all stars. Did you know that? Like, that's not like the varsity A team, and then there's the rest of us. It's not a title reserved for just the best of Christians or Christians only after their death. It's a reality. The New Testament pattern is to refer to all Christians, ordinary Christians, whatever that means, all Christians as saints. And nearly every New Testament letter uses that term in this way. Almost every single one of them. Christians are believers. Christians are saints. So what does the word saint mean? It means one who is set apart. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good thing, right? I have wood uh, in my garage set apart to be used as scrap or to be burned. I have shoes set apart for my other shoes for mowing the grass. So what are saints set apart for? And who is it that has set us apart? Well, set apart is another way of saying holy. I would never think of my mowing shoes as holy. That kind of set apart, holy set apart, is for a special purpose. It's the difference between my, my painting genes and my preaching genes. And yes, I have preaching genes. Christians are saints because God has set us apart as holy for a special purpose. You don't get set, uh, you don't set something apart like that by accident. And neither has God. It was a purposeful decision on his part to choose Christians to be holy, to be saints. We were selected by God to be holy before him. And that's another way of saying Christians, saints are the chosen or the elect of God. Those whom God has chosen to save, he also sets apart as holy. He makes them saints at their salvation when they call on Christ by faith. And this is not some theoretical, philosophical matter for somebody else to think about. This is the astounding truth that every Christian is personally known by God and has been personally chosen by God. So Christian, you are personally known by God. You are eternally known by God. You are lovingly known 
by God. You are entirely known by God. And that last one's like, that nah, can make us a little uncomfortable, right? You want anybody to know everything? You don't. I don't. But God does know everything. Before creation began, your sin was known by God and your salvation was planned by God. The purpose of our election to salvation, the purpose for God's choice to save us is that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's the terms of our sainthood. And you know, we're not striving to become saints by our holy living. It's not a title at graduation. That's the point I'm trying to make. You don't become a saint by being holy. That's worldly religion. If you do, then you will be. It's not true. And it's not the gospel. We are living out our new transformed identity as saints when we pursue obedience to God's will. It's not obey, you do good enough, you know, where's the grade, where's the bell curve, better than other people, you'll pass and then you'll be a saint. And some of us are the 4.0s, some of you, the 4.0 Christians, summa cum laude saint, summa cum sainte. I should know what that is. Don't get that backwards. Okay. Sainthood is identity declared by God lived out in our lives, not lived and met as a standard and then maybe you attain to it. Very different ideas. You know, I remember when we got our first foster care placement, two young sisters, maybe you remember uh, those two little girls, and when they arrived, we immediately began caring for them as parents would. Uh, we fed them, uh, bathed them, read them stories, put them in a bedroom in our house. Um, I remember immediately wanting to care for them as their father, protecting them and providing for them. They had visits scheduled the second day after we got there. And it's like, well, where are they, where are they going to see? You know, where are they going? Who are they going to be with? When are they going to get back? It's like decisions legally I had, no, <laughs> I had no impact on, but it's like, well, you told me I was their dad, so I'm their dad. I, I had be, been made that. I had this identity. I began living out my new identity as their foster dad. And the identity came before the behavior, right? You don't actually get to just take a child into your home and care for them in order to become their parents. As far as I know, that's called kidnapping. And it's wrong, <laughs> okay? You don't, you don't act to become. You act because you are. Identity influences choices and precedes that. Behavior flows out of identity. Changing behavior doesn't automatically change identity in either direction, okay? Changing behavior doesn't add or detract from identity. A father doesn't just protect and provide for his children. A father should also lead his children spiritually. So when, when I don't do that on a given night, I don't stop being their dad. And when I do lead them spiritually as I should, I don't become their father. I don't become more of a father. I am a father, but here's the thinking. I am a father. How does God define fatherhood? 
God defines fatherhood in this quick definition of training our children and following Christ according to his word, okay? So then it's like, I am this. God says this is what that is. Am I living out my fatherly identity and responsibility, or do I need to repent and grow in living out my fatherly identity? So as Christians, we are saints. We are saints. Now, God says this is true of us. The Bible provides commands and instructions and examples of what that looks like. So are we living out that identity, or do we have need to repent and grow? And really, both of those are true, aren't they? Am I living as a saint, or do I need to repent and grow in living as a saint? And the answer is yes. And we, it will be, that will be true for the rest of our lives. So the first identity Paul points out for Christians is that we are saints. We are chosen by God to be holy before him. You, if you have trusted in Christ, you are right now a saint. And we could think of that perhaps as our vertical identity, who we are before God. And the second identity he mentions is that we are brothers and sisters to each other in God's family. We are siblings. We're saints, and we are siblings. It is true we are adopted members of God's family, but that, that's not the emphasis here. It's, it's kind of like the sainthood before God is vertical, then this siblingship to the saints and faithful brothers. Brothers means brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. That, uh, that's talking about a horizontal relationship, something that crosses the pews. We are, each of us, Fred, Milton, Dad, Heather, Jason, Nate, David, we are co-members of God's family together. And all the ones I didn't mention, and all the ones watching, and those who've gone before us, we are co-members of God's family together. And since God has said this, and God has declared it to be part of our identity, we must relate to each other as family members. We have to. Because that's the identity that God has declared on us, and our identity influences our behaviors. And Jesus said that these relationships, one another, that these relationships would be marked by our love for one another. I think we heard that in our reading this morning. There are two directions, if, it, if that's the right way of saying this, two directions that this follows for each of us here, specifically here right now, as members, family members of Risen King Church. Not just limited to Christians here, but, but this has meaning for us. Two directions. First, kind of a direction to you, maybe, that your identity as a sibling should be a comfort to you that you are a member of a Christian family and loved as a brother or sister. This is the group, the family's attitude toward you. No Christian is to be is this lonely, only child in the family of God. Sometimes one of our girls will express that they're lonely. They want someone to play with. So in response, I'll remind them that they, each of them, have five other children. 
that they can play with at almost any given moment. You know, even if one isn't available, there are always extras. And oddly enough, Leanne never complains about being lonely. You are not an only child in God's family. You are a sibling, for better or for worse. You are a sibling, and you are loved as a brother or a sister. So that's one direction, right? Your siblingship means that love, family love is to flow toward you. There's another direction, though. It also means that your identity as a sibling means that you have a responsibility. You must also love everyone else here as a brother or a sister. Everyone. Part of our church, part of Christ's church, must be loved as a brother or sister. This is living out your God-given identity as a sibling in his family. Paul wrote about this spiritual privilege and responsibility, the responsibility of spiritual family. He wrote about this to the Galatians. In Christ, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And Peter wrote about this as well. He's speaking to husbands, but we can expand this. It bears remembering. It bears thinking about for all of us. He said that, that wives, and we can include all spiritual sisters in this, speaking specifically men, right? Wives, sisters are heirs or joint heirs with you of the grace of life. Not sub-heirs, joint heirs. Just as much a part of the family and an inheritor as you are. Husbands, we are to remember that. And all of us brothers, we are to remember that. And we are to live that out as our identity. So in the church, this church, in the family of God, we must remember that the primary relationship that we have with each other is a family one. And it should overcome any difference. Jew and Gentile sides? No. Brother and sister Master and slave? No. Brother and sister. Rich and poor? No. Brother and sister. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white? No. Brother and sister. Male and female? No. Brother and sister. Republican and or Democrat? Vaxxed or unvaxxed? No. Brother and sister. So let's strive to demonstrate this in our lives and in our church. And let's think about whether we are demonstrating it in our gatherings and in our post-gathering fellowship. Let's think about that time as an opportunity to develop new relationships with our brothers and our sisters, and not just to deepen relationships that we currently have. One time a week, all of us, the family gets together, and if we only are fellowshipping with the same people, we're not developing new sibling relationships. That could mean meeting someone new, and I don't just mean a visitor. We, we go after visitors. <laughs> if you're a visitor, we love you just 
stop, you know, plug your ears because you might not come. And we go, we go after visitors here at Risen King Church. And I love it. Like you, you can, you have to run to try to get out of here. Uh, and I'll just keep it up. I, I can't even get to visitors because you guys get to visitors so fast. Like I have to be rude and interrupt. And you're like, you talked enough. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting this person now. But I don't mean a visitor. I mean a member, a family member, a sibling that isn't familiar to you. That's what I mean. Perhaps they're in a different life stage. God has blessed us with older and younger members. Let's develop those relationships. Maybe a different life stage of a parent or not parent, or an empty nester to hopeful parent. Let's develop those relationships. And maybe you're like, I don't know, extrovert. You're asking a lot. Maybe it's not the step of just running up and going to find somebody. Maybe this step for you is planning to just stay a little bit longer after the gathering because somebody will come for you. (laughs) And you're like, no. If you run out of the door every week, we've we've got a meal planned. We've got a concert. We've got this responsibility. I get it, right? Sometimes we do. We never... We, we try not to, we never, we would never make that. Uh, some of you are better at getting out the door than we are. And sometimes that happens, that's fine. It's not like a sin to have dinner plans at 1230 with somebody. But if every week, every month, every year, you're running out the door, when are you gonna establish sibling relationships among our body? When are you gonna connect? And if you do that, you're missing out. Uh, You're missing out on relationship between siblings, and you're also neglecting participating in the relationships of siblings. It's two direction, right? You You need to be known so that you can be loved, and you need to know so that you can love. That's what siblingship is and, and missing out and neglecting those relationships in the church as family members, it's not God's design for your identity as a sibling in his family. I have to go from you to me or full-on extrovert. Is there a step? Is there a person? Don't go invade a group. Find somebody, okay? That's just, let's do that. How is it that we have come to have these identities? Why are we saints? Why are we siblings? To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Paul writes, it's because we're in Christ that we're saints. It's because we're in Christ that we are siblings. Our sainthood before God, our sibling relationships with one another are both true for one reason and one reason only. We are in Christ. That's a huge Phrase All sorts of different prepositional prepositions that Paul uses to get at this same idea. Being in Christ means we are united with him. Our lives now and for eternity have changed because of our relationship and our connection with him. Think about how much a person's life changes when they become united with or the citizens maybe of a new country or when they become married or when they're adopted into a family. Those things, those unions, that means new privileges, it means new opportunities, it means new responsibilities. 
And someday, really soon, that's going to be true for James and Lily. Like, real soon. We'll let you know as soon as we know when that'll be. And we're going we're to have a party, and you're all invited. Because we want our family to be there with us. Because you, you have been family to us, and you've been family to those babies. Well, someday, that's going to be permanently true for James and Lily. Fully amblers, better or worse. Finally and fully in our family, legally, because they're already fully finally members of our family, but legally, the judge and the state will understand what we all know, and permanently part of our family. So they're going to share for their lives. They're going to share in our joys, and they're going to share in the ambler's sorrows. They're going to go, we're going to journey through ambler mountains, exciting times, and ambler valleys when we go through trials. They're going to be there for our holidays. They're going to be there for our sick days. Is this what family is? Be part of our family. And being in Christ means all of that times infinity. You don't just get to open presents at a birthday party. It means you have his perfection and his righteousness. That's what union with Christ is. It says when, he says later in Colossians that when Christ died, that we died too. We died in him. And that when he was raised, that we were raised because we were raised in him. The union statements like this. His righteousness is our righteousness. His perfection is our perfection. His inheritance is our inheritance. He speaks in terms that your life, your life, believers, is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Because you are in him. So perhaps you've been wondering now or earlier, you know, how do I become a saint instead of a sinner? How do I become a sibling instead of a stranger? And while it's easy to think that the answer starts with your behavior changing, that isn't true. You cannot change your behavior to become a saint, to become a sibling in God's household. And you can't change your spiritual identity on your own You can't do that at all because there's another identity that's by your own, by by you, unchangeable, that you are a sinner. You bear that spiritual identity until God acts to give you a new identity. And God has acted. Something needs to be done about your identity as a guilty sinner before God and something has been done because the good news of Jesus is is that he did something about it. That, that he, like sinners, I am a sinner, deserve the punishment of death for their sins, so Jesus died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins on himself. And then he rose from the dead, and having endured the punishment of sin for you, he offers you forgiveness for your sins, and it is free for you to receive if you will only trust in him. How do you become a saint? How do you become a sibling? Trust in Jesus. And he will make you new. He will give you a new identity. In Christ, you will be a saint and you will be a sibling in God's family forever. Father, thank you for these glories that my faith in Christ 
that we are saints, that we are siblings. Give us grace to uh, repent of not living these out and grace to live these things out for your glory, for Christ's glory in this church. Bless our time at your table, we pray.